audio. My name is Trevor Strong. You can go on on Twitter. And I have with me one returning guest and one new guest, uh, Natalie Watson, who you may remember from a long time ago where we talked about, um, I believe, the Kingdom Hearts gacha game. I think that was discussed. Yeah, yeah I believe I believe that was part of what I remember. A part of a larger conversation. It yeah. wasn't just that. A larger were, conversation about our favorite games that year. You were a very big defender of the Kingdom Hearts gotcha game, and I appreciate that as a gotcha. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say proud gotcha enjoyer. I would say, uh, you know, reclusive <laughs> gotcha enjoyer. Um, and and uh, Mr. Sam Barlow, who you might know from games like uh, Her Story and Telling Lies, but today we'll be talking to uh, him and Natalie about the new game, Immortality. Hello, Sam. Welcome to the show. Hey, also a, a huge fan of gotcha games. That's... Oh really? Sure what's I your play. Yeah. what's your what's your pick? <laughs> no, I'm. That's a lie. But I did. There was a period when this when those things first existed. I remember being in a studio and they wanted us to to figure it out because they were like, "Look at all this free money. It's so easy." Oh my god! And uh, so the game that I played was Rage of Bahamut uh, okay. on my Android, which was um, was like one of the big ones at that point. It was like okay. a card game. Uh, and I remember playing that quite intensely and, and enjoying it. <laughs> and then my wife noticed on our credit card bill oh, no. that like, there was a purchase. And it was tiny. It was like, I don't know. It was like the $3 first bag of goodies. Okay. It was the deal. They gave you That's the deal. That's the deal. You always get the deal. But just just that was yeah. like, that was to my wife like this warning <laughs> going off of like, oh my God, Sam's getting into online gambling. Like what's going on? And I was like... <laughs> just a game maybe i'll get the five dollar pack because i really want the red dragon and there's a mm. one in a whatever chance in some ways it's online gambling i played that game so much that i realized i should never play any of those types of games ever again that's the gotcha story uh right there except you did mm-hmm. not do the thing where you downloaded uh, a couple more uh which is yeah. what most people end up doing so good for you <laughs> uh, good job uh i do like i do like to imagine a, an fmv style gotcha game produced oh it, in the, oh in my the god <laughs> you'd be surprised i remember having a meeting with a well-known asian games company who and the meeting started with them being like why did you not have an energy mechanic in her story why did you leave that money on the table that was that was where the meeting died for me like spiritually <laughs> But I'm trying to imagine, like, to what, like cups. You're out of cups of coffee. Well, no, no. It would, it would literally be. It'd be like you get five searches an hour, right, or whatever. Right, right. Or right. you can wow. watch, you know, ten videos an hour. I don't know. Like that was their take. Oh, God. Just like, just like scraping up my money so I could buy more Minsky clips. It's <laughs> like I have to know what happens in Ambrosio. show. Like, what's going to happen? I, like, I, I've done so many TED pulls and I don't have it yet. Um, yeah, maybe maybe there's like a shortcut your way to finding clips, like automatic. You just buy a pack of clips. Yeah, buy a pack. Yeah, of you clips. buy a cup, and there's the rare clips. <laughs> I mean, it it's horrible because it probably would work. Oh, it absolutely you know, probably would. would. <laughs> I think I think it absolutely would work. <laughs> it was the same with like when when the NFTs were a thing. I, they're not. I hope. Uh, I mean, not really. They sort it of was died just, out. It was so easy to have the thought experiment of. This is what the non-linear FMV NFT game would look like. And oh my God, I could probably walk into a room and pitch some people and they would give me millions to do yep. this nonsense. But luckily, I'm a good person at heart. Luckily, so. we have morals. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a rarity, uh, but I, I, I appreciate it. Um, 
Now, that's actually like an interesting way of, of jumping in. So so Immortality, for people who haven't played, is a, um, I mean, if you haven't played any of, of um, people think of her story and telling lies in Immortality as like a loose trilogy I saw. Mm. They can do that if they want. Oh, that's generous. I mean, it's it's three games, therefore it becomes a trilogy. <laughs> then I, no, I, I definitely, to me, like the weird thing we talk about sometimes is that if you're not me or you're not close to making these games and you're out in the, the wider world, and there's a million video games to think about. Obviously, you look at like her story and telling lies and immortality, and you go, oh, they're kind of similar, right? It's mm-hmm. this guy's involved, and they all have nonlinear collections of clips of stuff and the story and blah, blah, blah. So it's easy to be like, oh, there's another one of those. Whereas being closer to them, they seem very different to me as games. Sure. And again, like with the, the, the loose FPS analogy, you know, you because the FPS genre is something we're all very familiar with, like you can come out with a new shooter. I don't know, like when Halo said, oh, you're only allowed two guns. Suddenly it was like, oh my God, mind blown. Like they've totally changed the game, right? Or they've, yeah, right. you know, Gears of War is like, this is how you reload a gun. It's like, oh shit, like, boom, they've just <laughs> taken this to a new level. And so, you you know, those small nuances can, can kind of push, make it feel like games are radically different from each other. Whereas because the idea of like a her story is so outside of, the mainstream of what a video game looks like that it even even if her story and telling lies immortality are very different to my mind uh okay. it's, it's much easier to kind of sure. group them i mean they're definitely in conversation with each other and that i think each game has been sort of somewhat looking at the previous one and being like oh there's some cool ideas here we can take this in a different direction this is a thing that's interesting about what happened in that. Let's do something in a different way. Well, I was interested in seeing this, and this is something that I'll, I'll definitely want to ask you about, Natalie, too, since you were the producer on on, the, on these listed. You were credited as producer. I don't want to, I don't want to like nom- uh, give you any sort of nominative uh, dictatorship here, but you were credited <laughs> as producer. Um, but uh, on on these films, uh, and I, I want to ask you about that. But like, I really did like how a, a sort of like a a very very low grade film history enjoyer. Um, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed how this was taking on not just like the kind of FMV-ish, you know, looking through clips, finding disparate connections, but then also commenting on film as well. And sort of like uh, that like Mm -hmm. multimedia approach was really, really uh, uh, rewarding. Um, So this is a question for Sam and then a question for Natalie. Um, Sam, when you brainstorm something like Immortality, um, or, or sort of pitch it or, or anything like that. Is this a game that you imagine sort of like focusing on a, we're well not focusing on providing a commentary on video games, or is this something that you're approaching and saying, like, I want to make, um, something akin to a film or I want to make an art project or, or is it, does it, I guess a, a simpler way of asking this is, does this relate to any one medium specifically within like its conversation or are you kind of approaching it holistically? Mm. I mean, this one explicitly like the fun of it was to to like deconstruct movies in some mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. In the way that like her story was kind of deconstructing the detective story and, and coming at that and, and breaking it down a bit. Right. That was definitely a, a thing here of like, oh, this is going to be about movies. It's going to make you possibly consciously, maybe subconsciously, like think about the act of watching them uh, it's going to be about how they get made. It's then going to tie that to kind of larger questions for me about like storytelling and, and all these mm-hmm. things. So that was definitely like on the menu 
Um, but then part of all, all three of these games has been, for me, very consciously thinking of them as video games. Uh, mm. uh, like at this point, I think I've done enough interviews where it's like my, my bit is to is it a game? explicitly is it- dig into like how Nintendo game feel and like thinking about Nintendo games is my go-to. Yeah. Right. Like when we did Telling Lies, Breath of the Wild was the game I was playing all through developing that. So I got a few okay. kind of a few article headlines of like Telling Lies is the Breath of Wild, the Wild of FMV games. That explains why you get the glider in that game. <laughs> but like the way Nintendo take like simple game mechanics and then genuinely give you an ability to express yourself as a player through them, right? So the reason that Mario is a good jumping game versus all the bad jumping games is there is some kind of fluidity and fidelity to how you can go about the jumping and the level design Mm -hmm. and the game rewards that. So you watch uh, a a hardcore Mario player and they're like some kind of parkour genius just like bouncing around these things and getting through a level in like 10 seconds. And, you know, like for me, the reason Breath of the Wild was a good open world game as opposed to all the bad ones, was because it was one of the first open world games I played where they actually, like the point to them of that game was to have fun walking around a big open world. It wasn't mm-hmm. just the thing between objectives and, and like the, the the way they thought about the climbing mechanic or just the grass or just the music and just the level design of that game was there to just reward you and, and generously kind of reward you with this world to explore. So you know, those kind of things are always in my mind. So, you know, to my mind, Immortality is a weird game, but you offset some of the weirdness by saying, well, there's a generosity to it, right? There's a freedom to it in the same way that Mm -hmm. Nintendo lets you just run around Breath of the Wild and go wherever you want. We're going to let you jump into it. If you just keep fiddling with Immortality, you're going to see cool shit. It's not like we're going to force you to level up or figure out some weird skill or do something complicated to get to it. Right. And there was there was like there's an interesting uh, sort of archival feel to this game that I really appreciated. Uh, I mean, partially coming from the academy, but then partially just like as someone who likes to dig around on Wikipedia or like look through things. Like there was a, you know, I, I've I've been playing the game in so many different ways. Like the first time I went through, I just went crazy looking for clips. Right, like oh, like mm. what can I click? It's like, like accumulating can... a lot. Yeah, of and I'm sure there's inventory. A, right, I'm sure there's a million other ways to play it. Like I'm sure there are people who play it by watching mm-hmm. one clip and then watching another clip and sort of, but I just like, I, I put together everything and then those, sort of watch Those people are perverts, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> to not just click on stuff rapidly and jump through a bunch of shit is, is you, you actually, truly is, dodged a bullet. You know, I can't believe that they didn't catch you with gotcha. This is uh, the, the industry's <laughs> greatest failure. Um, but, uh yeah, no, I, I I agree. I I couldn't I couldn't not do it. And like, I I liked getting to know the movies as sort of like um you know the way that you put together a syllabus or something like that or or, or put together mm. a reading list where you're like yeah you know there's this movie from 1968 and there's this movie from 72 they they probably go in conversation with each other and there's a you know you can kind of look in deeply when you want to but look out and it it did feel like uh, it did kind of for me, um, encompass that joy of exploration. So I appreciated Mm. that, um, a lot. Um, Natalie, when, when we talk about production with this, um, two -hmm. questions, uh, for people, uh, not me, because I of course know everything about what a producer does, but, uh, for people (laughs) who might not know, um, what does a producer do? And then also 
how did producing these films? So the the game has three films, um, Ambrosio, mm-hmm. which is based on the the gothic uh, novel The Monk, um, mm-hmm. uh, Minsky, which is sort of like a nineteen seventies uh, cop drama in true sort of like Serpico meets Acid Freakout. And then um, <laughs> to everything, which is a, a kind of a 90s, late 90s thriller. So you produce these. How did producing these films feel different when you're doing them for sort of these segmented moments in a video game as opposed to just like thinking about them um, as mm. a, a, a film in its entirety? Or was there a difference? Like uh, how did how did production change that way? That's a great question. Um, you know, actually, I think predominantly we we ran our video production kind of as a traditional film set. The only difference was we weren't shooting, you know, multiple shots for each scene. We had one shot per scene, one oh. perspective. Um, oh, sure. So, okay, sorry. I thought you meant one take. Sorry. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, one take. I mean, wow, that would have been... supposed to be the quickest game ever. <laughs> yeah, the quickest video shoot of all time. Like, the candles fell over. Fuck it. We just got to... We just got to... That's it. Yeah, we got a one we take. You got to roll with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's why you see. Yeah, any bloopers, any bloopers <laughs> in the game are all uh, intentional. Yeah, design. that's why when, when the boom comes in an Ambrosio and someone says, "I think we saw the boom," you're just like, right, <laughs> "I'll work with it. I'll make it one of the clickable things." It's fine. That's so funny. We we did because we knew we wanted some boom moments, and we went into it just with the assumption we'll get some naturally and we'll okay. own them. Mm-hmm. And then we managed to not get <laughs> get any. So there came a point where we were like, "Do we just tell them?" <laughs> Like, do we just get them to, because, but then it, you know, like, oh, it might just, you know, feel awkward or whatever. But yeah, that was one of those where we were like, shit, we're like almost done with this and we haven't got any good takes with the boom in it. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to tell people like, Hey, could you do your job like a little poorly? Um, Oh, makeup hated that, right? With the blood, with the Mm -hmm. the 60s blood. I was like, it, yeah. I was like, look, look at how bad the blood was in the sixties. Like it needs to look like that. And they were like, really, do we have to? And I was like, yes. <laughs> but it'll of... be worth it because we'll, we'll have an evolution of it. Yeah. We'll see different know. bloods. And uh, yeah, but they were like, that okay, I think they had fun it. with. Yeah. Getting to... yeah. The fidelity um, was fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so, so I think, you know, it, it was, it was pretty much run like a traditional film set we had all of the traditional department heads uh you know an an ad team uh a production team um with uh two line producers heading that uh who whose background is in film okay. so everyone that was working on the video production um came from film and tv so this was you know another set to them except we did uh a bit more of a involved pre-production explaining mm. one, the story, because the story is a little complicated given how many, um, you know, narrative layers that we're working with. So just keeping everybody on the same page in terms of where we are in the timeline, what layer of the story we're currently on. Um, that was like the first sort of orientation. Um, and then also explaining, yeah, we, we aren't shooting coverage. So we will only have, you know, one, one camera perspective per scene. Um, and, and that's it. And there's no, there's no cuts, there's no edits. So any given take, like that is the take. And then mm. we will, that is what's going into the game. There's no, we're not, you Interesting. know, uh, cutting things together at all. So that was that, those were probably, uh, the biggest, like 
differences from a, a, a traditional film set. But in that way, I think a lot of the actors um, would describe the experience of of shooting immortality as kind of like theater because mm, you only mm. have this one, um, you know, shot at a at a particular scene. It feels much more like uh, some actors would talk have talked about um, you know taking a more theatrical approach to how they. Um, perform those scenes. Yeah. And I think that really shows um in in the game in in the perfor- in the performances. Absolutely. And I, you know, first off, uh, the performances were fantastic. I mean, I'm I think I, I, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> um uh, I, I just the what everything with it. And in fact, even that, like even the fidelity there, right? With like the way, say like um the Ambrosio character was acted versus the way that um mm-hmm. uh, uh uh why am i forgetting her name um this is horrible the the main character of the game marissa Marcel. how marissa was acting in into of everything and julie mm-hmm. was acting like there there is just this switch in mm-hmm. how you were expected and in fact like you know from a more theatrical to less theatrical approach as well um and in this like i'm i'm sort of biased because i my dad's an actor so i i've spent oh. a lot of time yeah i spent a lot of time in uh in uh, black boxes and on sets and stuff. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was curious um, with the, so the, the supernatural, what I've heard some people call the supernatural bits where uh, you'll feel a rumble. I, I like, I played it on my steam deck, which actually was a tremendously fun way to play the game. Um, oh, that's amazing. I yeah, strongly that was... <laughs> encourage the steam deck for this game. If you happen to have one, if you're, um, if you're not lucky enough like me that you can write it off for work, um, if you're lucky enough, <laughs> if you've been able to get one, um, it's fun. The The deck vibrates and then you can scrub back and you find, uh, I think. Perhaps we should say this is the spoilers yeah, well, territory. I, uh, spoilers territory. And then I'll, back off, I'll back off. I'll back off. I'll back off. But, but um, you find you find someone there. You find these extra mm-hmm. scenes and some of them are in what looks like a black box. I mean, this, that seemed mm. very theatrical to me. Was that like, mm. was that sort of an inspiration there? Or was that like, just that sort of like sparse kind of, it almost looked like the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen like the old film, ver- film adaptation of, um, uh, oh my gosh, my, my, I'm sorry. I'm still recovering from Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's okay. The Greek play, uh, with the, the Sphinx and the, uh, uh Oedipus. Uh, the old film version of Oedipus where they have the masks and stuff like that. It had that oh. that quality where like it felt like you were filming a, a set when with all those um, conversations with her. There was definitely a conscious thing of like going from yeah, black studio stage to something that is very similar to that. We kind of had like some back and forths around if, if we wanted to embellish the visuals of that more and uh, the the use of black and white we decided on quite late i think but it definitely it once we kind of started to play around a bit and we knew what charlie's character was going to look like um there was definitely an element of like embracing something almost harkening back to black and white yeah. silent movies right and mm-hmm. and some of the performances and, and and kind of footage from that era so trying to find something that sort of felt slightly abstract and outside of things but also kind of reaching back to like the core of this medium or something. So yeah, there was, there was sort of a 1940s femme fatale, like um, almost a German element to, to that character in those scenes, which I will now back off of. Cause this isn't the spoiler section. Um, I do want to know, uh, I'm going to ask again, cause I, I totally obscure the question. Uh, what does a producer do, Natalie? Um, 
That's a great question. Uh, again, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I certainly I the think, question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of different kinds of producers um, in in games. I mean, I think a, a film producer kind of has a more es- established role across film um, in terms of like managing budgets, managing production schedules, getting the crew together. Uh, not too dissimilar from what video game producers do, but I think there are a lot of different kinds of video game producers. I think there are creative producers. There are uh, producers who are much more um, project management orientated uh, where they're, you know, setting all of our, setting all milestones and managing sprints and um, communicating between teams. I kind of do um, a bit of, of everything. I think my, my first year, uh, working on the project was primarily uh, devoted to research and development for the for the scripts okay. and um, what would become um, the the immortality script. So we Sam had us watch a bunch of movies. Um, we nice. read a bunch of books, uh, did a lot of research in just what it was like to make movies in these. Uh, you know, distinct time periods. Um, And then from there, once we got started uh, on the video production, I was asked to uh, serve as the script supervisor on set. Um, And also, I think being someone who had been working with Sam for about a year and a half at that point on the project, I think I was also just able to serve a basically like a uh, you know, where, when Sam couldn't be there, I was like the backup Sam, Okay. um, because Sam was answering somebody else's question or, or making another directorial decision. So crucial to have uh, a backup. Yeah. So if, 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 uh, but, but I think. Especially when you need to like reboot me. (laughs) (laughs) He's charging in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of, you know, I think we had, uh, two amazing line producers, uh, Shansam Gupta and Nicholas Bertelson, who managed a lot of the, uh, logistics, who managed all of the logistics of the video production shoot. So managing the crew, taking care of all of that. Um, so that allowed me to spend more time in the creative at that point, um, working with Sam and the different department heads to make sure that. Sam's vision was really coming to life, which I think we accomplished. Oh, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll be, I'll be upfront. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a big fan of the game. I think, I think you guys did a wonderful you. job. Um, it means a lot to hear that. Of course. Um, <laughs> so Sam, how do you, how do you see your role in this process? Obviously, you know, you're, you're credited as at least co-author of the scripts and, and, you know, the scenario and, and, it sounds like I uh, made the wrong choice in trying to be a teacher. You like you do all the fun stuff of like uh, putting together the syllabi for people and then you get to do cool stuff after instead of like grading papers. Um, but uh, how do you sort of see your role, like particularly as the production starts? Um, mm. What's your what's your sort of like how do you interact in that process there? Um, it's a good question. I think the closest because there are obviously lots of hats, and, and the smaller the team gets, the more hats everyone's wearing. Sure. Which I mm-hmm. think is yeah. like the the fun thing of making really small games. Um, I guess the, the the purest thing is, I almost used the word author, which is terrible, because 
very, very close to auteur, and then that becomes a, a I, I expect people have called you an auteur at times. This is like, do, do, do you feel like someone's walking over your grave at that point? Like, <laughs> it's just it's just like a giant trap. Like that. No, you're it's right. Like, you're well, right let's, first, take it. let's define our terms and then let's get into it. But um, like for me, the the you know it starts with like the story which might be specifically the story and the characters, or it might be the, the structure or the format or the idea for like, oh, we could do these mechanics or do these cute things that would help us tell a story. Um, and I never really, there's, there's not, it's not like I have two brains that's like the game design part and the story part. So, mm-hmm. so for me, like the, the act of authoring is inherent in all of it. So, you know, mm. and usually that'll be on paper. So there'll be a, a document or a bunch of spreadsheets or whatever that essentially becomes the game. And then that's, yeah. and then like the directing that happens afterwards is almost a requirement of authoring things like <laughs> this, right? Like, I mean, so like on one hand, like when I started out in the industry, I was making more traditional games. If you wanted to make a, a, a AAA game or whatever that, did things with story and, and had game mechanics that tied into the story you're telling, you had to be the game director, uh-huh. right? Like you had to be Ken Levine or Hideo Kojima. Like you, if you were just a writer on a video game, no one was going to let you actually make decisions. And, and even sure. if you wanted to, the, the, the publisher would be like, why, I, this, why are you bringing writers to my meeting? Like I want to speak to the people that are running, you know, it would. So the only way it worked was to be, one of those kind of writer director sure. visionaries, right? And that in itself, definitely there are problems around that. Yeah, so, I was going to say a problem there. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it always starts with like the writing slash designing, conceiving, like closing my eyes and imagining how this thing will play out in my head, and fleshing that out. And I mean, as you kind of said, like the most fun part to me is is the the research, which is an excuse to go and be like, here's these 30 books that I've kind of been wanting to read and <laughs> I'm going to come up with a project that justifies it. And then, oh, there's all these movies I want to rewatch or, you know, and that's like fun to, yeah. and I think that's like, it, there's never enough time in, in most video game environments. There is never enough time to actually properly craft a story or, or think about it. Cause it's all happening in one big rush and, and this yeah. huge teams. And it's, whereas, in an idealized, and I know that this is not how movies actually work a lot of the time, but like the idealized version of the movie process whereby a screenwriter can spend, you know, two years writing a screenplay and like taking the time to just lie on the sofa and think about it for like mm-hmm. four hours and then go and get a coffee and come back, mm-hmm. you know, make some notes, whatever. But like the time to to properly kind of ideate the idea and then just like for me the cheat is always the research. Because, you know, and I would see this on the bigger games where you'd be in like a brainstorming session with with decision makers and people would start throwing out ideas. And in that situation, the ideas that won would always be like the first few things that came into people's minds because we all watched the same show three months ago. So when someone's like, oh, what about a story about blah, blah, blah? And they're like, oh, that sounds great. And, and people's brains knew that that idea worked because they'd seen that same exact idea, right? Or, or mm-hmm. I mean, the, the curse in 
traditional video games of like Blade Runner or Aliens, right? Someone references stuff like that that's just so, you know, inherent and nostalgic that people latch onto that. But for me, like the really interesting stuff is when you make yourself write a list of like, what are the hundred ways I can do this? Or mm-hmm. when you then go and read three autobiographies of people doing something somehow linked to your story and you get to those little nuggets of just like little anecdotes or details where you're like, oh shit, that's like so specific and random. Like you couldn't just put like, you have right. to dig to find these little nuggets. And, and so for me, the research is just, absorbing and gathering all these little nuggets and interesting details so that then it becomes easier to come up with cool shit and and to kind of surprise people or have interesting things because you've just got this, you know, this, this resource, um, which I so yeah, answering your question, uh, it's no, thinking of it as the perspective of like, a lot of it is the same muscles of like writing and conceiving of things. And then, you know, then you get to the execution and the iteration and all that, but, it's it's still always coming at it from a kind of a writer's perspective. Uh, yeah, it, it felt like a very writerly exercise in, in many ways, which is not a uh, not a negative. I can see why the, how that would sound pejorative, but I mean that in the nicest possible <laughs> way. Um, I so I, I I kept thinking about ways to frame this question that would not seem like. Uh, I was leading you or putting down anything. Uh, so I wanted to start off by saying, I think all of these films are great and I love them and I love watching them uh, in part because of the way you constructed them in like, um, you know, in terms of production and, you know, you get to meet the, the directors behind the scenes, the kind of like shift between Arthur to Duritz is, is really interesting. That kind of like, uh, the, the, the sort of um, confidence to introduce like Andy Warhol into your script, like uh, all that stuff is really fun. And I, I just, I loved them. They all have their own diff- specific feel and they mm. all impacted me very, very much. However, my question here, I'm interested in both of your answers. Uh, it, they may be the exact same. Do we think, or did you think making these and not do we think, but did you think making these, that these in their world were good movies? Like, masterpiece films things that that did well critically mm. things like that or are these movies that sort of um miss the market somehow like i i i'm mostly curious about like internal you know mm-hmm. that, that was very explicitly an interesting question that we are asking in that like the struggle and there's definitely bits in this that come from like uh working in AAA video games and the struggle mm-hmm. of trying to make something good and the constraints, yeah. right? There was definitely, like with Ambrosio, we're thinking a lot about late-stage Hitchcock where uh, the world is changing, movies are changing around him, and Hitchcock is stuck. Uh, and, and the things that made Hitchcock cinema like stunningly cinematic 20 years earlier now makes it feel kind of old-fashioned and theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Uh, explicitly was thinking about um, there's a lot of like Gene Seberg in this and thinking about Gene Seberg's first movie, hugely hyped. She was cast as a nobody in Otto Preminger's uh, Joan of Arc movie based on an award-winning play. He had some of the greatest actors alongside her. Not a good movie, <laughs> right? And and and, yeah. and she was savaged for it and it was all on him. Like he did not, like he explicitly would not let her take acting lessons. He was like, I will craft you. Um, that's funny. And then like, and then, you know, jumping to like the late nineties, like thinking about, um, and like a lot of this was coming from like my fascination with lost movies, 
And mm. a lot of lost movies are lost for a reason. Um, or, you know, movies that didn't get made. Like uh, Orson Welles, one of my favorite thriller books is uh, Dead Car, which eventually they made into a movie with Nicole Kidman. Yes. But Orson Welles attempted to shoot it. And, and there's footage of it that exists. And on paper, if you say to me, Orson Welles adapting Dead Calm, I'm like, oh my God. Like, that sounds incredible. I can't believe we lost that and it never happened. But then you watch the footage and you're like, yeah, it's, it's, you know. Like, maybe not the maybe, worst thing. Maybe that movie didn't need to exist. Um, so, yeah, we're, and, but it gets very, obviously gets very complicated and, and tricky to be saying we're setting our goal at making something that is not, the greatest thing. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. but I think you see it like, like an Ambrosio, you have someone like Robert Jones who, you know, thinks this is going to be a great role for him. Yeah. Thinks that his performance is going to be amazing. And this is going to be next level I think with Robert Jones. I think his name's almost legally, if close to Christopher Jones, uh, who was in uh, David Lean's Ryan's Daughter, which I, I love that movie. This It has some of the most beautiful photography of any movie. Uh, it's, um, but it's, uh, unarguably a terrible movie like <laughs> and you've got like david lean you know who has, has hit so many you know, such heights and he's adapting this great work it's epic he has the beautiful irish coast they build this entire village like it's gonna be incredible and then like there's just some bad casting there's a few bad decisions everyone was grumpy when they made it and, it, and it's just not the best movie but to me, those movies are almost as interesting as the idea of the lost movies because mm. in in they're not working. There's something interesting, like interesting to see Christopher Jones, who has this incredible screen presence, miscast and and not mm. getting there. And it's yeah. so that was that was definitely a thing that was was interesting. And there is, uh, you know, in in the arc, like this idea of struggling to make something, and obviously just the act of uh, yeah, in theory, you could write a perfect novel. In theory, because you have you can exercise a certain amount of control over the written word. But the movies are a great example, and video games, very similar example of there are so many people, so many complexities involved right. that like it's almost imp- and, and you know you could argue there are perfect movies, but it's so hard to hit that because not only does your plan have to be correct but there's just so much other stuff that just has to like happen. So there was something interesting to me about that struggle. Um, and like with the, with the late nineties movie, I was thinking about um, like you saw Kubrick put out eyes wide shut. Right. And, and he literally died making that movie. Like he, 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 he literally killed himself making it and, and he died before he had finished editing it. And so there's all these interesting discussions like among, you know, some people love eyes wide shut uh, but there are people who are like, this movie wasn't finished. The shots of New York streets feel like the cutaways in Seinfeld to just like random. <laughs> it's just, it's just random stock footage of New York yeah, streets. Sure. Right. And they're like, that was just temp. Like clearly that was temp footage. But at the same time, like, is it just again, like Kubrick obsessively doing lots of stuff where he's shooting in studio sets and things like there's just lots of interesting decisions mm-hmm. being made on that movie. Um, but yeah, that idea of like, and, and a, you know, again, Eyes Wide Shut was a movie that he'd been trying to make his entire life. Like, it was really important to him that he adapt this story and he make this movie. And he'd had, like, four or five goes. Every single writer 
of, of a certain level had written a version, like John Le Carre did a version. Wow. Uh, he almost shot Eyes Wide Shut with Woody Allen. Uh, Steve Martin, he almost did a version. version yeah. There's a, there's a <laughs> universe where there is a Woody Allen eyes wide shut that exists, right? Like that's. Hate that. I'm so glad we're not in that That's one. a rough universe, so we, yeah. We dodged that one, right? Um, <laughs> we lucked but out. Like to, so to me, it was really fascinating that like eyes wide shut is, you know, it's an interesting choice. And like his obsession with, throughout his career, he kept coming back to the idea of trying to make uh, an artistic sex film. And obviously Eyes Wide Shut is not that at all because it's kind mm-hmm. of like, it's like the least sexy movie about right. sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then bizarrely, like Kubrick had complete control of his advertising and he put out the teaser that that uh, made it out to be the sexiest movie ever made. That was just right. like Tom and Nicole canoodling in a mirror. And, and everyone was like, oh my <laughs> God, this is going to be like the sexiest, most erotic movie ever made. And obviously- I remember that advertising it was, bliss. It was like a movie- I. When we were was researching this, Gay? no, no, it was so. um, Chris Isaac. It was like, was it Chris Isaac? <laughs> oh, oh, uh, uh, I was like, always baby did a, It was like, no, it was, it, he did. Uh, it was a baby's done a bad, bad thing. So it's like, oh, uh, it was like really bad, bad thing. Kind of, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Who there you go. Oh, my Already, yeah. you've just elevated the sexiness. I know, but I actually went back because I had such a distinct like sense memory of that was one of the first trailers I downloaded off the internet. <laughs> nice. It was one of the first movies that had like a website and it was in, um, it wasn't Windows Media Play. It was in some format where I was like, oh, just just that format was like taking me back. Was so it real I went player? And I, I was looking in like, <laughs> I managed to track it down. I think it's like an internet archive that they had this record of this website existing, downloaded it. And the resolution, it was like, I don't know, 128 by like 64. <laughs> it was like so grainy. Uh, but I just had to kind of put myself back in what it felt like when that movie came out. Um, That's but, you know, so that was a long answer to your question of like, yeah, we were really trying to kind of revel in, in that texture of like interesting movies. And I think like mm-hmm. you, you talked about the, the idea of the syllabus, but also to my mind, like, uh, like when I was growing up, and we didn't have the internet, if I wanted to watch weird movies, I would have to watch like the late night double or triple bills of like weird shit after midnight on like sure. channel four and the BBC. So they would always, there was a show called movie drone, which is like the greatest ever television show where Alex Cox would introduce two or three weird movies that the BBC had licensed, but had no excuse, like had no reason to show anywhere else. So he was told like, you can go and look in the storeroom if you find any weird movies. So it was like a lot of genre movies, a lot of like foreign movies. And and just, so they, a lot of them were not perfect movies, but it was really interesting to drop into these strange movies and that I hadn't heard of and um, kind of what, and I was watching them on videotape where I was fast forward. I, I can't imagine this inspired the game at all. Exactly. The idea of dropping into weird movies. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's super interesting. Um, you know, like a lot of the reason, um, and then I, I I also want to frame this in terms of uh, production too, but, uh, you know, a lot of the reason I ask the question is because there are those kind of like personal myth-making scenes, like in, um, there's the scenes with Duritz and uh, talking about Minsky, where, you know, it's, it's the behind-the-scenes thing, and it's in that really warm uh, 1970s film glow sort of thing. And they're all talking. It's like, it's like, Oh, we're just getting together. We're having a fun time. And it, mm. they all just so believe the myths of themselves. Like the, when they're, when they're, um, you know, haranguing the actor who plays the the detective about, 
uh, how conservative he is and like, oh, but you uh, yes. like it, these scenes are like they're just they're, they're the kinds of scenes that you see. And like if you watch uh, and I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but like the there's like a, um, a classic like Bob Dylan documentary uh, that feels like that. There's even even the the documentary about the election of like the 1960 Democratic primaries, which was like one of like <laughs> the earliest documentaries. It has that feel like there are these scenes where people are in a room together and it's like, oh, these people like either know or think they're going to be legendary. And that always mm. and, like the party for Ambrosio, things like that, like those kinds of things always feel like this is either going to really work out and look great in the future or it's going to be extremely embarrassing. Um, and that, that that was one of the things that, that sort of spurred me to think about this. I think that it's less of a thing for the crew, but like as an actor, it's really interesting the extent to which you have no idea if this thing is going to be any good, right? But you have mm-hmm. to kind of give yourself to it. And sometimes you'll see like a movie will blow up or something, or even like my kids made me watch Stranger Things mm-hmm. recently. And uh, <laughs> they, they hated it because I would just be like, that's where this shot's from. That's you should watch the movie this is evoking because it's better, whatever. But they, and they, and so now our TV, whenever we turn our TV on, uh, it just is constantly suggesting YouTube videos about making of Stranger Things. Um, ah. But there was like an interview with David Harbour where he was like, we shot season one. I 100% did not think this was going to be a hit. Like he was like, you know, I was happy to get paid and shoot this thing. But to my mind, this thing was not going to go anywhere. Right. And then it blows up and everything. Right. But, but there's definitely, yeah, there's like a certain type of actor that has like the, I don't know, it's not necessarily charisma, but like the the self-belief and the energy to help everyone come along for the ride of being like, because everyone is constantly terrified, right? If you're making something as complicated and challenging as a movie, everyone is constantly every day having to wake up thinking like, is this going to work? Is this worth it? So you need like mm-hmm. having that lead actor presence of being able to just kind of, even if everyone's not 100%, you look to them and they're like, we're, this is it. We're making art. We're making something incredible. Like this is going to be something we're all proud of. And that happens it's on fun. every movie, right? Like that happens in whatever you're making, whatever the game is. Uh, you know, it's when not I was too dissimilar to like, to the experience of making I mean, I think obviously we have, we had a hundred percent belief in, in the project and what we're making, because I think it was, you know, worthwhile to us in, in, in every aspect of the word. Um, but you like, we didn't know how it was really going to be, especially like making a niche thing in a niche, <laughs> in a niche, uh, you know, space. You, it's unclear, like what, what the reception of immortality was going, was going to be. I, I, I wasn't really sure how people were going to take it, um, personally. So I feel like it's not, I mean, it's easier when you're making something that that looks cool and exciting on paper. Like I had to, be, like making <laughs> making crusty demons of dirt on the original Xbox, yeah. or making the, the tie-in Ghost Rider video game, as I did. Like I was the person in the room who was like, "This is going to be good. Come on, everyone!" Right. Like, right? Because you got it. Because you like you know, you you've got to be pushing and, and excited to show up at work. You got you got Twice. all the ones of the, uh, the you did the Scorsese one for them, one for me thing, but you did all the ones for them early. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how that's how it works. I mean, that's I mean, Scorsese is a great example of all those people that came up under Roger Corman, right? Of making these things. Yeah. Uh, mm. I think James Cameron has now admitted that he has allowed himself to be credited as the director of Piranha 2. Oh, good. For the longest time. 
I remember that. He was didn't like, want that yeah. to be the case because it it was it, it made his TV look less cool. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, everyone a banger. And you go back and see. Um, <laughs> but, I wanted to. But I mean, that was that was the video games industry I grew up in. Was you to you'd start out making movie times and mm-hmm. Nickelodeon games and those things, and then you'd get the you know hopefully <laughs> Touchwood gets to the point where you could then make cooler things. I guess that doesn't I guess now that would be mobile gaming. It does. Yeah. There's still a little bit of it. I remember I had uh, someone on a while ago who was out of the games industry, but sort of like, it was basically like horror stories from the games industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things he had worked on, I think was like a big buck hunter tie in game for the, mm-hmm. like a real tree, you know, a game that was $20 all way from start. Not, and he was like, yeah, no one, <laughs> no one thought this would be good. This is just what you had to do. And like, it is interesting, like, it is interesting that even for those, you have to have someone who believes in or else, like, I, I, I forget who says, I mean, I shouldn't say I forget who says this, so many people say this is, like, impossible to credit, but, like, the very idea of making a movie is so, like, improbable and miraculous, and the same thing with a video mm-hmm. game, like, there's so many moving parts that, like, I think if someone doesn't believe in it with all their heart, like, people just give up. Actually, this is a perfect time, because I feel like we're stretching up against the limits of the non-spoiler section. I want to ask thematic mm. questions, and I think... We're going to have to introduce the spoilers to do it. So we'll take a little break here um, and then uh, we'll come right back to the spoiler section. So if you don't want spoilers for mortality and I will say the spoilers do not impact the enjoyment of the game. The game is not it's not about like in my opinion. You guys can disagree, but it's not about like discovering something at the end. Um, mm, but they're definitely yeah. they definitely speak to the themes of the game. So we'll be talking about that uh, in just a second. All right, we're back. Here's where I am going to ask <laughs> Sam and Natalie <laughs> to talk about the uh, the underlying plot, which I will say I had the uh, the the uniquely cool experience of finding the video where Marissa is burned. Uh, you find out what happens to Marissa. She is uh, she is burned to death by her alter. Well, you're going to have to help me out here. Um, but uh <laughs> Uh, and then uh, the game sort of starts to glitch out on you um, in that, like the the sort of like uh, other character we alluded to earlier in the black box comes through and says, I'm part of you now. I'm I'm like, I'm always in you. Um, and then it goes to the credits. Um, this happened to me when I was just try. I was uh, just about to go to bed around 1 a.m. So that was that okay, was exciting. I was like, time. that's creepy. <laughs> this is like this, this is good. This is we should, uh, we have so, uh, people. With, I have so many fun memories of like finishing games. And, and getting into the good bits of games at like 1, 2 a.m. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be too much work to just like only allow that shit to happen. Like just look at the player clock. Mm. Be like, nah, you're playing during the day. You don't get, that'd be like the, <laughs> you don't get a the weird entry. version of Boktai. <laughs> I remember having, right. buying the Kojima game Boktai and living in England where we never had any sunlight. Mm. <laughs> that game sucks so bad. Oh, I bet. You'd be yeah. like, it'd be like, oh shit, this, the sun's going to come out for 20 minutes. I need to run outside and kill my vampire. <laughs> It was, it's also yeah. like I feel like I feel like playing at night is also when you get the most sort of uh, uh, it, like it, it's where things are potentially most volatile. Like I remember mm. uh, I think the funniest ending of a game was I was streaming Dark Souls and I finished it. And just as we were sort of like, you know, tossing around the idea of like, oh, you know, like I was streaming with a couple people like maybe we'll play something else or whatever. Um, I got called upstairs because my son, uh, my second child was being born. 
So it was just a very wow. funny moment where like I beat oh Dark God. Souls and then my son was immediately born. Uh, oh my God. It wasn't the first time I beat it. That would have been way too metaphorical. But uh, Childbirth is, is the Dark Souls. Of that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Real yeah. life. It's... <laughs> In so many ways. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think nighttime is is the time to get to the end of a game um, mm-hmm. alone and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a so there's this through line through the game um, often found by way of scrubbing the film in a, in a specific way, something I have a lot of questions about. But mm-hmm. before we get into that, how do you sort of like how would you condense the basic ideas behind the sort of like w- subplot or or what I was kind of like thinking of as like a fourth film in there? Like there's there's this kind of battle between much bigger entities that that comes through as you as you work through mm-hmm. the game. I mean, I think like part of it, this is a very glib take, but like part, part of it was being exposed again ambiently through my kids to a lot of like MCU stuff mm. and like all this kind of epic world building, like, oh, we're going to take two phases to establish our pantheon of superheroes and then we're going to like kill them all and like all that Marvel stuff of me just being like, oh. And so me be like, okay, I'm going to do like a really weird version of like still, you know, making this strange indie game, but it has this, this kind of more epic uh, scale to it if you kind of dig into it a little bit deeper. But I think a lot of it came from some of the, I mean, there's a lot, lots of things happening all at the same time, but you know, part of the the spark of this project of like thinking about what makes film different, right? And the idea that you're capturing someone on film, right? And that well, there's that, that. Great, there's that great uh, monologue that Marissa has in, um, and also the the actor who played Marissa Manon, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just unbelievably cast, just fantastic. I loved watching her. Uh, she was just completely like, I don't know. I, I was I was really taken uh, by her work in that. Um, but, uh, she has that great line in one of the interviews, which is one of the ones I found last, um, in Ambrosia where, uh, where she's like, you know, if you think about it, it's like this connection of light and chemicals mm. and screens and people are sort yeah. of, it's a very sixties way of thinking about film, right? Like, and then thinking was about channeling, uh, there's, uh, th- he never did an autobiography, but Nick Rogue gave a series of lectures that then turned into a book and it's. Fantastic, but also hilarious because it, it it's three parts. And the first part is like him as an apprentice in mm-hmm. Pinewood or whatever. Or he, I think it was Pinewood. And, and explaining like his initial love for film and like anecdotes of filmmaking at that time. Second part of it is, oh, this is me making my masterpieces, talking about my theory of film. And then that kind of segues into the third part, which is like he genuinely believed that through film would unlock some kind of transcendental experience, <laughs> understanding of space and time that would allow us to actually spiritually transcend our physical beings. Like he, like, you know, it was like, I love film, but, but yeah, we're going to go, the, go by here. The PK Dick mind so there was, yeah. So there's an element of that, but yeah, that was like just thinking about like, what's interesting about, watching old movies and, and then thinking about lost movies and stuff is like, whereas, you know, books and everything else, you know, have, have a certain type of existence, the act of filmmaking of actually capturing someone on camera. And then the extent to which that has a life of its own, right. Um, the, the, the example early on that I would kind of dig into was someone like Rita Hayworth, who mm. 
comes from that earlier era of filmmaking where you were manufactured and the studio created you, uh, you know, through, through literal like plastic surgery and voice training and, and all this stuff. But despite the extent to which he was, you know, a piece in this horrible, complicated machine, what persists of those movies is the idea of Rita Hayworth as a star, right? And mm-hmm. that almost transcends the movies themselves. So that was yeah. like, a, to me, you know, and as somebody that, especially working in video games, if, if you allow yourself to be a little bit kind of navel-gazing, at points you really question, like, we're making these things that only work for like a few years, uh, right? Like, my good, the good game I made before I went into Silent Hill Shattered Memories is this, this cool-ass Wii game that some people really, really love. But you pretty much can't play it now. Like, you know, you would have to get an original piece of Wii hardware, find a disc or whatever, play it. You can kind mm. of emulate it, but it's not the same. But then not only that, but like the level of graphics from back then, not the, the faces don't hit the same now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So working in this medium, you became extremely aware of like how transient it all is. And like, so then you start asking these deep questions of like, am I doing this to leave like a lasting, you know, to, is it my immortality machine, right? Like, yeah. oh, if I write the great American novel, I will live forever. Um, so it was definitely like then conceiving of a character that speaks to you know, takes those kind of more abstract ideas and, and literally makes them flesh, mm. which I think is where it almost like someone, you know, we call this a horror game and, and by my definition, it's kind of horror. Um, They're scary. But like what I love about mm-hmm. like more fantastical movies and, and genre movies and horror movies is that you get to take something that's just a metaphor and then you literally give it flesh and then at some point you kind of almost stop talking about it as a metaphor and you get mm. to just kind of experience it, right? So you create the perfect monster or manifestation of your fear of mortality. But then at some point you stop thinking of it in those terms and this thing that's chasing people around in a horror movie is just the thing that's yeah. chasing them around. And I kind of like that. Um, so that was kind of the thinking of like, yeah, if if you, you know, what, this is like, we, I did this... Uh, Legacy of Kane game for three years that got cancelled. Oh, I, I always wanted to play that game. I was a big Legacy of Kane fan. I was I was really into that. I was excited about that, and then it didn't get it was, very, it was very ambitious. I don't know. You just, if you just reminded have... me of that, like, strange disappointment from glossy magazine days. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, a, what, one of the questions we were asking there was, like, uh, talking about vampires and, and the big distinction between humans and at least our vampires was, like, humans are defined by their mortality and by the need to breed and, and, and either create a legacy through their children or through the things they do and achieve for others. Whereas, well, hey, but if you're this immortal vampire, suddenly all that stuff stops, right, and breaks down. So kind of revisiting some of the stuff we've been digging into there and thinking about, well, if, if you are an immortal being that doesn't have any of these pressures, would art mean the same thing to you? Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, creating essentially these two characters who come at it from different ways um, and, you know, having a character that is is drawn to and sees the beauty in how our, our mortality is the thing that allows us to create art. So, you know, those it then became a, a, a character to explore some of those ideas and hang those ideas on, hmm. um, which is always fun. So um, 
Natalie, I'm curious, how does this like work in, and uh, Sam, I'm sure you also have some thoughts on this. How does this kind of like work its way into the, the making of the film? Because of course, like particularly the stuff with, and I think I'm getting this right though. The other one is the, 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 the woman who shows up if you scrub backwards in some places, like who sort of the like, one that's the one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the other one is her, is her counterpart. Right, 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 right. Okay. I see. Buddy. I knew I'd get it wrong. It's okay. We shot it with totally different names. They had different names in all the various versions of the scripts. And then we're like, Oh shit, we have to give these people a name on the credits <laughs> that people are and, going to like and also the, see. And then like the shorthand that we used would be misleading. <laughs> right. It was just like, we had to write a word on the page. So we're like, Oh, we need to sit down and, and come up with something. So I think it's the one and the other, right? Cause I think she refers to the one to and the other. Yeah. There's even, there's um, the moment in, in uh, two of everything where uh, she says like, I can't even remember if I'm being Maria or myself. Like it's just difficult. I was like, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, <laughs> The game is commenting on itself, um, which was great, actually. You don't see, again, refreshing in video games. I don't think there's a lot of video games that are willing to do those literary flourishes. Um, mm. But how does that sort of like come through in the filmmaking process? Because, of course, like, you know, you're, you're shooting the scenes with the the one and the other, but you also have to kind of imply their existence behind the scenes. Right. So, like, mm. how does that implication sort of work its way in? Um, how do you kind of um, speak to that sort of like palimpsest or or, uh, or, or, you know, not quite a uh, stated reality when you're shooting it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, um, Manon and Charlotte worked, uh, you know, worked closely together sort of off the screen in terms of, uh, talking about their characters mm-hmm. and stuff. And, and both were very attentive to when they could be, when they weren't being, you know, uh, dragged away to hair and makeup or <laughs> costume change or something like that. They're very attentive to each other's scenes. And often um, we would actually block both both versions together because oh. we needed to, um, because uh, we had to make sure that any particular blocking, since so often we were, you know, either repeating dialogue or repeating certain movements or things like that we needed to make sure it would work for both scenes so uh often we would block together so i think that helped in you know establish kind of what would be felt in both um versions of the scene mm-hmm. so i think that uh that enabled Manon was always very uh conscious of where um you know the one would be Right. In in a particular scene in terms of where where in the timeline of of that story um, uh, she would be in. Mm-hmm. So she she was keeping like four different timelines in her head or four different layers of narrative in her head at any given time. It's um, impressive. I mean, one of, one of the advantages of this being a weird ass nonlinear video game is that to get to the script stage, everything is pretty heavily planned out in terms of how this right. actually all fits together. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I would hope For so. For any given right. scene, you know, we were able, you know, if the, if the actors are not in any way, you know, if their characters are oblivious to this stuff, then the real actors were oblivious to. But for anyone that was brushing up against this stuff, you know, they would know, you know, but at any point, at any given scene, starting point for, for, for like Manon's character would be, this is what, what Marissa is genuinely thinking or feeling. This mm-hmm. is what she's then projecting, you know, and, and all those things would be running through it. And there's like a few other characters that at various points are uh, not actually themselves, but are, are kind of Marissa as well. So those actors for those scenes would be like, actually in this scene, 
you're not actually mm-hmm. doing you. You're doing you're doing man on doing you, like <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and you know all these. So that but that was always the the number one thing of in this scene. You're not necessarily you're not playing Matilda in this scene, or you're not playing blah blah blah. You're playing this character who in this moment is on this film set acting in this role. Like, and, mm, right. mm. and two minutes before you were just canoodling with someone behind the scenes or, or like yesterday you had this big, you know, it was always like, this is the context of what's happening on the film set. Mm-hmm. This storyline that's going on. This is why, um, you know, this is why you might suddenly start crying in the middle of this scene, right? These are all these mm. things that, that, that I had. Cause we had, great moment. we had like the full <laughs> list of, yeah, this, this is all the story. Cause I mean, yeah. that's, it's kind of essential because even go back to like her story, a lot of what I started doing in that game was like, oh, well, there's lots of story that will never even be on screen. Like it's right. it's all in the, the kind of negative space or off screen. And if you want people to discover that, then you kind of need to know what it is, right? You can't just throw shit out there. And I mean, you could, but... Right. Uh, people do. So, yeah. So it's it was always important to be like, these, this is, these are the big plot points that we're choosing to not have on screen and therefore right. everyone needs to know that. Hmm. Right. We, I think it, it's, it's worth saying that uh, Sam meticulously designed where, where things, uh, you know, came through between layer, between narrative layers, mm-hmm. where um, different, you know, projections of a particular character, whether it's Marissa as herself, Marissa as the actor, Marissa as the the one, where those things would bleed into other layers. Um, all of that is 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 very meticulously designed. So we, you know, it it was all basically laid out for the the cast and the crew. And and like I think this is a fun detail that that Sam mentioned earlier. Is like, yeah, there were some cast members who didn't have an awareness of sort of that deeper layer. And that was purposeful because they're, they're not clued in into, um, you know, Marissa's, uh, various forms and things like that, or they're confused or they're like observing something that's confusing. Um, so all of that is very, uh, very intentional. Um, and that's true in real life as far right? because there were like a bunch of actors who were pretty much there like every day. Yeah. So they kind of yeah. knew what was happening, but then you would get like little bit players that would show up, wander into mm-hmm. a strange set, Someone and have walked- no idea what, what, how, why are we shooting it like this? What is going on? Right. Right. You know, so there would always be like a little bit of an orientation, like, hey, things are a little unconventional here. This is what we're doing. Just go with it. There's, there's one great anecdote that Hans tells Hans Christopher, who played uh, John Durek. Uh, in the game, he he talks about one of the actors coming up to him and asking for notes of for <laughs> like a, a particular scene, and and he was like, no, I'm just I'm playing. I'm not the actual director. I'm playing the director of this of the scene, and but I'm not the actual director. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. That's so funny. There, there are some funny bits like that where people would walk up to uh, some of the actors that played crew members or things like that and, uh, and ask questions. Um, that's funny, but it was all, it was very, it was very wholesome. And and I think it played, it played into perfectly the experience, both actual and meta of immortality itself. So it was, it was kind of perfect. 
You know, there's a lot to be said about um, how presence works in this game, both like uh, mm. uh, thematically and, you know, just in terms of experience of the game. And I think like the way you're describing it, right, with like some people literally not understanding a presence is in the room or understanding mm -hmm. it via just intuition or in fact, like the blocking right together. So, you know, like you can be looking, thinking about the the reading scene for Ambrosio, maybe the most sort of like it was the first moment mm -hmm. for me where like the 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 one uh, popped into the scene itself as opposed to having like that a, was your first the one no appearance? no the first the one the appearance oh. was the blowjob scene I finally figured out what the buzzing okay. was on the on the uh, on the controller and I found the one there but the 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 reading of the the scene where everyone is is having sex while um, mm -hmm. the sermon sermons going on is the first time I saw the one actually appear in the scene right like mm -hmm. there 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 are moments where the one appears and there are moments where the one has like their own little monologue. And that, mm -hmm. that scene was really impactful to me because all of a sudden everyone else at the table remained the same, except you had like her and, um, uh, uh, Robert, Jones. Yeah, Robert Jones, um, having sex on the table. And like, mm -hmm. it is, it is this like, you know, having that presence of like, okay, we're going to do the scene, but also while the scene is going on underneath it all, you have to be aware that there's this other thing there on some like lizard brain level like mm -hmm. understanding that, like even within the 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 blocking, really helps me as a player um, or viewer understand like why that scene felt so impactful. Like why looking at Arthur uh, just kind of sitting passive at the front of the table uh, while that happened really kind of hits uh, so well. Mm. Um, mm. When you're talking about like immortality and 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 text and you know making something that lasts and and this sort of like. The battle between mortality and 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 immortality. I think yeah, I think this is the time to ask this question. The end of the game is Marissa's character being burned alive, burned to death. Um, mm -hmm. Extremely surprising moment. So, given Marissa's relationship to mortality, uh, or the other ones, the other's relationship to mortality, and the the way that mortality and immortality intersect within the within the idea of film and the game itself. Did you intend this as like an explicitly like dark or not dark, happy, sad ending? Like, is this just mm. like how do you how do you sort of conceive the ending here? Because I think like a lot of a lot of it. I mean, there's there's a ton to be said about, you know, the 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 act of disintegration on film, uh, running it back like you know, you can run it back and then the person comes back together. Um, even the way that film itself is so combustible, um, you know, in the mm. nook of the north, I think they lost a ton of it because like it just went up in smoke right um like i i guess i'm just wondering how you saw that scene and how you saw it fitting into the overall narrative as like a conclusion is it supposed to be like pessimistic optimistic something different um how how did you how did you guys sort of uh perceive that i think it almost changed in the execution as well because i think mm. like charlie brought more emotion to things so there was it was like definitely coming from a place of um, like I say, take, taking some of those abstract ideas and making them real. So the frustration of not—I mean, it came, it came out of that idea of like the the the, the weird irony of if, if making a film or a piece of art is is an immortality machine, the idea of people killing themselves to make art, right? It's this weird. I mean, maybe it's not an irony; it's almost maybe even more wholeheartedly Tragedy. buying it. But yeah. So that idea of of pushing yourself to the point where you know your your life is on the line to make this thing, um, 
but then like the the realization that they have of being able to 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 transcend that and obviously like you know historically you know if you're a rock star you want to die young right and and there are stars who have become immortalized by dying and and that becoming part of their legacy so there's that kind of element threading in but there was it was to some extent there's a there's a level of ownership in her choosing it mm-hmm. uh in, in it being her solution and her plan so it it does give them a way out of just the perpetual struggle in some it's kind of is it kind of depressing because it's like she has tried to become human and create art and and it's not worked and they have you know things have consistently got in the way so it's kind of to some extent it's the the failure um so in that sense it becomes sad but it was like it was trying to play with that of 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 like yeah running up against giving up on the dream of of being able to create the perfect thing mm. But then realizing there's another way. Like I'm, this is, we're in the spoilers for Telling Lies as well. Like Telling Lies ends with someone dying and her story, a possible interpretation of her story is one of, of kind of a heavy sacrificial act on the part of one person. So I don't know. I'm, I, like, I, I definitely am drawn to stories where like the, people die at the end <laughs> when there's like, there's, it's like this, you know, there's, there's not going to be a sequel. There's like, there's, there's, this big ultimate thing. Like if a story is essentially a, a lifespan, then obviously there's something nice about hitting that kind of finality to, um, hmm. but, but yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was really, yeah, the most, the, the chunkiest way to directly confront some of these ideas of, of, you know, running up against the limits of mortality. But there's also the like, it's like one, one sort of interesting wrench there is like, I mean, for one thing, she doesn't, she disappears. Right. And so like disappearing is different than dying young in that if you disappear, right. The, 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 the idea that you might someday be found um, almost, right. almost ages you as it goes along. Like you get like, they would be 85 years old today if they were alive. Yeah. Right? Here's what they would look right, like. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that, that feels, that feels different to me um, in, in actually kind of a productive way. Right. Um, and then also just what you said, like uh, that finality, right. There is a way it's final where you, where you run the clips, you know, chrono- like chronologically, but if you run them based on films, right. Um, which I like to do while I was watching like the films to watch the films. Um, that happens and the rest of two of everything happens. So it's this very odd moment of like finality followed by continuity. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know if there's like a question there. I just think it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's, it's an illustration to me of the, of like the productive contradiction, uh, contradictions in the game. Like there's no mm. simple answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, I, I don't think it's supposed to be, you know, a clean, a clean exit. Right. It's it like Sam says, I think even even for the one herself, like it this has come with immense sacrifice for her in so in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um sacrifice sacrificed relationships, um, you know, sacrificed uh uh endeavors in, in the form of the three movies, the sacrifice to life essentially mm-hmm. that uh she's led as Marissa Marcel for so long um, that it, it, it's a very, 
painful catharsis, like a, I think that comes through in the performance itself. The performance is not just, uh, you know, this like elation. It comes with a, a, a strong degree of sadness, I think, perhaps mourning of of the life that she had before through these different, um, you know, facets. Mm-hmm. And it is, yeah, it's something of an escape. Mm-hmm. Like the, I was really deep into the story of Gene Seberg. We're making this and... You know, that's another great example of like someone who was in a bunch of movies. Most of them were not good, uh, but had this incredible spark and, you know, their life was, was an extremely sad tragedy. Mm. But knowing that some of those good movies do exist and people go back and that, you know, and like the, the one I was, like when I was a kid growing up, I was obsessed with... Uh, I think they did this in an episode of Doctor Who. They've probably done it elsewhere as well. But I was obsessed with, like, Van Gogh and, you know, the, the ultimate example of, like, the tortured artist mm. who, who dies thinking that he's achieved nothing, right? And right. The, the kind of fantasy of just picking him up and dropping him into the 20th century and being like, check it out, dude. <laughs> like, it worked. But then you're like, yeah, it doesn't really help him, does it? There's a great, there's a great uh, <laughs> interview. I think this happens multiple times. But, like, John Carpenter... Like famously, the thing was a huge failure for him, um, and it's now a cult classic, and we all love it. And someone was interviewing him, and they're like, "So, how does it make you feel now? Now that it's a cult classic, like, does that help?" And he was like, "No, it still felt like shit at the time. Like, it's, it was still, a, you know, that doesn't it doesn't change any of that. Like, like I had no fun putting that movie out there and it being a bomb. And uh, you know, it's cute that people like it now, but um, wish they would have liked it then." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and that, I mean, that's a good point. Cause it's like, it is, it is this, um, you know, it's, it really is the character of Marissa that, that brings that kind of immediacy to all of this throughout where like you want these films to be successful because she is a, she's like a, a captivating presence, but like, you know, within the arc of history, I think it's pretty like, you know, these, these remind me of movies I like, you know, both good and bad. Like I, I could say like Minsky reminds me a lot of the French connection, which is a brilliant movie. Um, but like, you know, uh, I'm thinking there's like a Michael Mann movie, I think, called The Omen, which is what uh, <clears throat> which is what um, or am I, no, it's it's the Gollum, uh, which is what Ambrosio kind of reminds me of the pseudo religious supernatural. Oh, the keep. Huh? Is Michael Mann's The Keep. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I, ju- I, I watched it once. It was incredible. I watched it for the first time, like last week. It's a weird I, movie. I, <laughs> it's so uh, it's. It's it's a very strange movie. It's it has great. like so many so many famous actors who look weird or are miscast in that movie, <laughs> yes. and it has weird jumps where they just ran out of time and like the guy that was doing the VFX died halfway through. So oh, there's I didn't a lot know of that. Shots. Yeah, like, I think he was the guy who did like the VFX on two thousand one. So he was like, oh wow, next level VFX yeah. guy, and, and he dies, and then nobody else knows like what he was intent, like how to finish it or how, how he was intended to do it. Oh, no. So there's a lot of stuff with lasers and smoke yep. that, yeah, I remember and, and that. things. Yeah. But like, that's sort yeah, of what Ambrosio reminded me of in like, it had like that level of ambition. It's like Michael Mann wants to make a Gollum movie. Like he wants mm. to do like this. And it's like, there's the religious and there's the, the classical and it doesn't quite land, but it's interesting in a way that sticks with me. And like, so like in the arc of history, it doesn't really matter if these movies succeed, but like within the character, you've both created in this game, like that you want to root for that you want to sort of like be able to overcome, uh, the, the, the kind of limits of her, uh, supernatural strange form. Like 
there is like this desire to see them succeed as well, which I think is pretty interesting. Like I, I, I would care about the box office results of these movies in a way that I <laughs> truly rarely, rarely ever care about fictional work that way. Um, I, I think care- a lot of, I like the sad, a lot of the sadness as well. And, and almost like the, I, the coolness of giving uh, some agency over the ending, like, again, like I, was so close emotionally to like the Jean Seberg story, right? So she has this very sad life. Uh, all she ever wants to do is be an actress and act, and she never quite gets the chance. She has some very unhappy relationships. The, the way she's treated by the industry and the directors and her lovers is is like awful. Her life's destroyed by the FBI, and she uh, ends up dying, like killing herself and and dying alone. And it's very, very, very sad. You know, I love, like, her in Breathless is incredible, right? Like, the, the what Goddard managed to capture that Preminger hadn't is, is, like, fantastic. And there's a couple of other movies where you see this spark of Gene Seberg. But, like, as a human being, if you were to say to me, we could tweak the timeline so that Gene Seberg does not get cast by Otto Preminger and actually lives a very happy, successful <laughs> life. But these few movies that you think are worth keeping go away. You have to be, like, a huge shit to be like, no, I want to keep breathless. Like, sorry. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, and I think like that's the frustration that the one, and this more came out more in the research and the writing and then in, in, I think like Charlie's execution of the act of placing her in this physical body Mm -hmm. uh, and specifically coming out of like the trauma of the the Second World War and and as an actress in the 60s, 70s, whatever, like, it it just becomes too much, like the yeah. like the 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 possibilities of being human versus like the reality of actually having to to kind of deal with the shit of the twentieth century and, and life as a human being. Um, you know, I think that is the which is different. Like I was, I, I loved the movie Under the Skin, which was like a reference for me. Like that's my favorite vampire movie. <laughs> but like that's a very that's a very different story in that you know that's this alien who's attempting to become human and like a lot of the sadness there is that she never quite gets there right Right. it's Mm -hmm. that she can't whereas i feel like here especially through charlie's performance i feel like you you get to this point where actually she succeeds in in plugging into the human stuff like i think we talked about on set like the happiest marissa is is during minsky like when she's Mm -hmm. hanging out in 70s new york you have the the bohemian scene where like people uh, you know, living in the moment and, you know, you're seeing this explosion in people's ability to to explore their sexuality and their gender and stuff. The the idea of what filmmaking is is very different, has become this idea of capturing the moment and it's much more alive. Like, that's her thing. Yeah. Uh, and it, and then that, you know, the the other shows up and kind of ruins it, which, um, again, it's like my, my take on the 20th century is like, like, a, you know, growing up, a lot of my favorite stuff was was people writing in the 60s and then through into the 70s. And you had all that kind of counterculture movement and people feeling like they were going to change the world and everything was going to go to a, a whole different place, right? Reading, like, lectures by William Burroughs talking about how he's going to eliminate the family unit and free humanity from the, the, the shackles of the patriarchy and the nuclear family. But then, like, you know, the sexual revolution ends up actually serving men more than it does women like a lot of the political movements get lost and you end up in the fucking 80s so i think there's that really comes across i think and the more you digging is the research and you're seeing yeah as well like thinking of movies in the 60s and 70s that i really loved that were more 
you know, were exploring adult relationships. I mean, we've, you know, going through Me Too, you had like the recontextualization of uh, Last Tango in Paris and things, but like a lot of these movies and moments that were held up as being extremely transgressive and real. Then you you start to dig into it and you're like, actually the same old power politics are there, right? And there's the same sadness at the heart of them. Like it, the cumulative effect of that, I think, gets you to like a slightly sad place, which is where we're trying to kind of dig ourselves out of, I think, with the ending. Yeah. And I mean, there is, there is a quality to the end where like that, that sacrifice matters because, you know, as you say, like, <clears throat> you'd have to be a real asshole to, to say that you want Gene Seberg to have a bad life um, so you can get <laughs> breathless. But there's a lot of people who would say that. Right. There's like and I think that acquisition, that sort of like desire to have something that stays right is some is a big part of why culture shifts from the 70s to the 80s the way it does or the 60s to the 70s to the 80s that it does. It's this idea of of conservatism, not in the political sense, but in the sense of like, let's keep everything the way it was forever. Like people get. Yeah, people get really upset that they might lose their favorite piece of culture. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's tricky. I think there's also this like romanticization of the struggle for art, the sacrifice for art um, that especially at these times, like, you know, you hear about some some of the ways that people talk about them. It's like we were roughing it in, in ways that like doing productions in ways that like endangered actors and that's just how it was back then. Or we, you know, we just had to do what we had to do. And like, fucking twilight zone, man. Yeah. I get so angry whenever I talk about that. But like there, there are people out there who would, who would take that for, for, to have that piece of art or piece of media or whatever it is. Um, yeah. In exchange for the human sacrifice. And I think immortality pushes against that. I think immortality looks at you in the eye and confronts you with the sacrifice that's being made and, and asks you, is this worth it? Um, yeah. And, and I think it, 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 it works that it's, you know, that the one is, is considering herself and considering her own role and her own sacrifice. But I think it is commenting on a lot. It, 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 it invite, it invites us in, right? Like when she, when she says, I am part of you now, we are all a part of this process. Yep. We are by consuming it. We are now in it with her by, you know, traveling through all the images, whatever we've clicked on, whatever we've collected, whatever captures we've made, we are all now a participant in, in this piece of, of art and yeah. thereby a participant in what it took to have it be made and be here and be consumed. So, and as you say, looking it right in the eye, I mean, she maintains close eye contact with you the whole time. Mm-hmm. And like, there's that, the element of like her mm-hmm. not even talking and just, mm-hmm. it's, 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 be- yeah. it's beautiful. It's haunting and beautiful. It's I mean, shot. I can't tell you, I can't tell you wonderfully acted. Uh, how many times that we would be sitting at the director's monitor and I would just have tears like streaming into my mask, uh, <laughs> watching Charlotte's performances and, and, and Manon and, and, uh, a lot of other scenes on set, but Charlotte just has this ability to cut into the, just the deepest incredible presence emotions. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's just so it's really something to, to experience. Um, we were so, 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 so privileged to have the talent that we did on Immortality. Yeah, and this is, like, I, one thing, I mean, just to repeat, like, I think FMV as, like, a technology in games gets this bad rap because of the way it was initially 
you know, uh, uh, pushed forward that like, yeah, okay, they'll be fine. Like, it'll be interesting, maybe interestingly shot, but the acting's going to be garbage. Like, it's it's because you can't mm-hmm. get any good actors for it. Like this, this is very well acted. Like, it's <laughs> it's just it's a it's a joy to watch. Um, yeah, and I think like one of the things, and I'll 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 uh, I'll I'll leave you guys with the last word in a minute because I've kept you for an hour and a half now. But the, uh, you know, one of the last things that I wanted to say was like, it's fascinating listening to you two talk about the kind of overarching story with the one and the other. Because mm-hmm. it 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 cements this thought I had in the back of my mind as I was trying to piece together that story that like the essential lessons in that story are available to you whether or not you uncover like every bit and piece in there as well right like the movies themselves yeah, like this is mm. this is sort of I suppose this is a little more like um, you know lit one hundred one or like literary criticism one hundred one <laughs> but like you know there's doubles in all the movies and there's <clears throat> there's this idea of uh, you know, fighting against oneself and the idea of the of the the innocent and the temptress being the same, being one and the same or the the artist and the and the ghoul or whatever. Um, mm. And like but like even beyond that. Right. Which is like just like good writing. Um, like even beyond that, there's the sense of, you know, while you're exploring the films and like experiencing the game, I feel like and and I'm not sure if I can pin this down, but via what you've talked about with like presence and you know, production and care, um, scripting, there is the sense of like the lesson of the game or like that, that, that problem that the game wants you to think about with, um, you know, mortality and the, the, Mm. the, the complicity in making something immortal about good or bad. Um, that's there, whether or not you, you understand the metaphysics of the bigger plot, which is a really, really Mm -hmm. big success. Cause I feel like that's one of the things that hamstrings a lot of you know, very good media that I, that I love, but like people just don't get to the end of it. Cause they're like, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm sure if you troll the steam reviews, there, there's definitely those people there. Oh, so this, that's, that's uh, the other part of the show. I read all the one star steam reviews and see what you think. <laughs> uh, no, I would never do that. <laughs> that's, that's the point where I set myself on fire I, I, to, <laughs> to get away from I that. I curated this. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, I want to let you guys. I, I appreciate your time. Um, it, it's interesting. One of the one of the questions that um, I saw people ask me when when I, I said I was playing Immortality was like, you know, like oh, ask you know, see if you can ask about like you know the differences between the games. Like I know uh, Sam Barlow mm. gets critiqued sometimes about making the same game or something like that, and you answered it on the first question, so it was very easy for me to have fun <laughs> without thinking like how am I going to ask my hard hitting questions? You just like ran right in. So you guys have been great. Um, yeah, I just like any anything you think we've missed, anything that you want to want to say about the game, I'll I'll give you both a a chance to kind of get last word because um you know, I I only have good things to say about it. So, you know, happy to let you guys sort of uh see us out. Um want to go like Sam and Natalie or Natalie and Sam, I don't I don't know. You guys can decide between each other. Um I'll let Sam have the last word. Okay, so that means you have to go first. Okay, I'll go I'll go first. Um you know, I think my like wish if you've made it all this way and you still haven't played the game is that you play the game for yourself. I think Mm -hmm. it's really, it's one of those things that you can watch over somebody's shoulder and it's, and it's, it'll be interesting and it'll be an experience, but I think it is, it is truly something best experience um, by you, by, by doing it yourself. And, and it's funny because I think the thing that I usually want to emphasize is how immortality differs from telling lies and from her stories like immortality is if in your mind you're like it is one of those it is not one of those mm-hmm. um and that's not to 
like uh, discount telling lies in her story because I think they're incredible video games and masterpieces in their own rights. Um, but I think it is just worth taking immortality, yes, in conversation with them, but also like how is it how is it um, doing things differently? And we're interrogating something different here than than um, what's been interrogated in the past. So I think that's just worth experiencing for yourself. Absolutely. That's my piece. <laughs> I would agree with that. Oh, well, I, was hoping, I was hoping that whilst you spoke, I would come up with something cool to say. Uh, <laughs> I can let you lay on the couch like, for four hours and get a coffee my, if you my want. My least research on her story that asking people open questions is the best way to trap them. Oh, listen, all, all, of, my, all of my podcasting skills, meager or uh, good as they may be, come from uh, years of teaching. Uh, being being in the academy, being a, uh, yeah, I just learned how to ask people questions and like, like, how do you come up with good questions? Like, I guess I listen to people and then just ask them open questions and they tell me everything I want to know. <laughs> I, so I think my my takeaway uh, would be I think one of the things I don't think we talked about this much. One of the goals for me with immortality was to some extent to give myself permission to go try something ambitious mm. and. Mm. And like, there was this interesting question of like, where does indulgence stop? And like, if I think of a lot of my favorite, favorite works of art, books, movies, paintings, whatever, like a lot of the stuff I love is people just going for it, right. And just doing themselves. Right. And, and some people completely get, are allowed to do this, right. Like no one's going to question whether David Lynch gets to be David Lynch. Right. right? They're like, oh, of course, that's what we're paying the, the money for. We want to see David Lynch go off and spend Showtime's money on that episode seven or whatever of Twin Peaks Return. Um, but, you know, in games, obviously it, it trickles down from like AAA, but such a conservative medium, uh, you know, the rate at which things change because of the technology, because of the budgets, because of the timescales, it's sometimes frustrating. So I was like, okay, with this one, I'm just going to give myself permission to, to set as the objective, like to make something big and messy and indulgent and like just just to allow ourselves to be ambitious in some ways. And I think it's really easy as an indie to sometimes not be ambitious, yeah. right? Or to pick to pick your ambition in a way that because you've got no money and you've got no resources. And I think uh, you know, like Obra Din would be a good example of like and obviously coming off the huge financial success of papers please probably helped but like he lucas Pope gave himself permission to be like i'm just gonna go really detailed about how rigging works in old ships and and so like there's stuff in that game that i just can't that i just love because i'm like oh this is he's just no one would have let him do this right like this is him indulging and mm -hmm. and pushing it in an interesting weird place uh and so yeah, I love things like that, and I would love to see more games. So, you know, if if the success of Immortality critically and, and commercially and as an example of letting yourself do that is useful to others, I'd love to see other people just going and, give, you know. An era of indulgence. Oh, all right. Veblen <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the positive light. I like it. I you sound a lot like the the early filmmakers who were just kind of trying something and didn't know whether it, any of it would work. Just kind of thought this is pretty interesting. Let's see if I can make a script out of this out of you know the train thing that people are freaked out about. <laughs> and everyone's like, "This isn't art. This isn't theater. This is this is just some tawdry sideshow." Good thing they're not saying that about video games. 
Uh, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. Where can people find you? Uh, obviously, people can play Immortality and should. I am a, a, a huge advocate. Um, it is uh, for for what it costs. Uh, let me just say it could cost sixty dollars, and I would I would recommend it. It does not, and I still recommend it. Um, so go go pick it, it up. It is incredible value for money. <laughs> if, yeah, people you seem get. worried about three that. movies. I Think about how much you spend on movie tickets. And these would be this is what, like you'd have to go Criterion I, for these. You'd be spending a lot of money. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> I have like I'm terrible at guessing like play length and stuff. So games always end up taking longer than I think they should. But like. People have like played this game for like twenty plus hours mm-hmm. happily, and I'm like, okay, damn, that is good value for money. Yeah, yeah. you could go, you know, you could knock through. Actually, I don't know. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna be bad and be like, you can knock through an Uncharted game in like six or seven hours. But actually, now like those AAA Sony <laughs> games, they're pretty long. Are, are starting to like, no, no, we're gonna give you thirty hours of quests and stuff, and then like, the subquests will get you to ninety. Yeah, you know, yeah. you could buy buy older uh, games on sale that like you know just play through Morrowind again if you want value for money and just like you know just indulge yourself. <laughs> I tried on, that. On the shorter I ones. tried that quite recently. I was trying to show my kids. I was like, "This was Daddy's favorite game." Oh, see, we got to we got to get you in touch with Dia. She knows the good the good mods. And uh, it's yeah. just yeah, moving very slowly. <laughs> and then got killed by a crab or something. <laughs> I was like, I remember. I was just trying because that. I remember that first, like, you get out the ship in Morrowind. I just remember it feeling like, oh, my God, this is, like, virtual reality has happened. I'm here. I can just explore. This fantasy adventure is unfolding. And, and that, that wasn't the reaction they gave me. <laughs> then you get caught by a, and, a crab. <laughs> but, yes, but that's, I would go back even further. Uh, was it Dagger, Daggerfall? Oh, yeah. That was mm. my, that was my, oh, my gosh, I love Daggerfall. Um, but that was where they used the power of, like, procedural nonsense to make a game that's genuinely too big. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's the best. It's, it's obscenely big. Uh, there's a good, there's a great video uh, online of someone who walked from one side of the Daggerfall map to the other <laughs> and just filmed the whole thing. I think they had to do some time-lapse on the actual YouTube upload because oh, it was God. long. It's too long. You know, fair to them. It's that big. Wow. It's, it's like genuinely, cause like, you know, most, you know, it's like the GTA and it's like, oh, it's a whole city, but it's actually like the size of, it's a sandbox, a, a, yeah. A small town, kind of, right? It's all mm-hmm. cleverly squished. But, like, I think Daggerfall, because it was all kind of semi-procedural, genuinely, like, it's the size of a continent. <laughs> so silly. So silly. <laughs> so people can find your work that is not Immortality where? We'll start, we'll do the, we'll do the same order. Natalie, where can people find your work? Oh, uh, okay. The, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Natalie Watson, as long as Twitter exists. Yeah, um, you got it. We should record multiple versions of this. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Now, where can people find you on uh, uh, co-hosts? Where can people get yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole list of of, of places to find people, <laughs> but Twitter's a good starting point. That's, yeah, it's still around right now. I'm sure. I'm sure once you know, if it's if it's years down the line and people are wondering what Twitter was, um, I'm sure they they know where to find you still. Um, <laughs> and your podcast with Austin Walker um, on Star Wars, yes. Yes, yes. I also do a, a Star Wars podcast called A More Civilized Age uh, with Austin Walker uh, of Friends of the Table and formerly of Waypoint, um, which is a lot of fun. I think if you like Star Wars or if you watched Andor and you liked Andor, you should listen to it. It's a good companion piece. There we go. Excellent. <laughs> and Sam, where can people find your work? Yeah, uh, I am Mr. Sambalo, M.R. Sambalo on Twitter. That's where I put most of my silly thoughts and I'm sure I will be the same user on Mastodon and co-host. 
<laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Well, the, the, the Hive, I don't think I got as far as installing Hive. I semi-installed I Hive and then, and then I started to see like the milk, the milkshake ducking of Hive in real time. And I was like, Immediately. Oh, I'll, I'll wait five minutes to see if Is that the one where you website. can't make fun of billionaires? Is that Hive? There's one where that's considered. Is that yes. the one? Oh, no, no, that was Post. Okay, that was Post. Post. Where that's that considered hate speech to make fun of billionaires. I'm, I- I'm yeah. glad I missed that. Yeah, one. that one that one's not gonna take off. They rewrote like the the statement of the Bill of Rights. They like so it says, like, we believe people are equal, independent of their color, ethnicity, social standing, da 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 net worth. <laughs> net worth. <laughs> it's like, it like, oh my god, yeah. Because you can't help it, right? You're just born Gable with your net worth. There. Like, let's yeah. not oh it's terrible. Um, and you guys know where to find me. You can listen to me on a cartridge and I'm at Hagelman on Twitter. You can also buy my book story mode, um, where you buy books. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being on. This has been, this has been fantastic and go play immortality. Everyone. Thanks so much for having us. This was a blast. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks, Thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.